Hey, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. This is a show in which I talk about all things D&D. It is shot on Sundays in the early morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time before I do my Lazy DM prep show. And in this show, we talk about whatever we want that has to do with D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help out with videos like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to a lot of exclusive material. They get access to previews of videos. But most of all, they help support shows like this. So thank you to the patrons of Sly Flourish for signing up. Any tips for finding groups in new cities? Finding a good D&D group is the hardest part of D&D. And it helps that we remember that that's the hardest part. We, we feel like it should be easy, and it's not. I will offer up, I think I wrote about this. I have an article called Finding and Maintaining a D&D Group. So this is an article that I wrote for D&D Beyond back in 2018 called Finding Players. And I think it's my most, I think it's the best. I've written a couple of articles on this, but I think it's the, I think it's the top one. And... Yeah, start off with this. This is actually based on a bunch of polls and surveys that I did about how people found their groups. So so some data behind it. Kind of I only do online now. Yeah, so one, friends and family, coworkers. I've I've heard a lot of people who are finding people to play with, with friends, family, and coworkers. That that is a really good one. You kind of know their personalities ahead of time. You can get an idea of who would be good and who who wouldn't. Go to your local game shops, talk to them about it, see if they have organized play games, get involved in those organized play games, maybe run games. If you, one thing I will recommend is if you, if you can DM, DM, because there's always fewer DMs than there are players. There's always, well, I mean, obviously, but there are more players who want to play than there are DMs to run games for them. So if you have the opportunity to play, to, to run a game, run a game. Most DMs are DMs because they were the one at hand. They wanted to play enough that they were willing to DM. It wasn't that there are certain personality types that DM or that you know some people like to DM more than they play. I, some do, I do. But a lot of times what gets people into the DM seat is they are the one who wants to play the most and they are therefore willing to take on that role. It's a very rewarding role. DMing is awesome. If you are like, well, I've never DMed before, so I'm probably not the one to DM. That's, you know, it doesn't matter. Get started, right? And because it's easier to find players than it is to find dungeon masters. If you if you are looking to play and you have nothing, learning to DM is a good way to, to get involved in the game. Seek out organized play games, Meetup, Discord, Reddit, Facebook. You know, look for groups that are in your area. Look for you know, look for you know, Nextdoor. I I, w- I was wondering if those like gaming groups on Nextdoor. It seems like that'd be a perfect place to do it. But look for groups that are local to your areas. Most of the organized play, most of like the D and D Adventures League groups, have local areas where you can where you can try to find people that are there and a big one online you know as, as soon as you play online and i've been playing online exclusively now for for 15 months or something like that and they're just as rewarding to play D. frankly i love them you know one of my games where we were local we're staying online it's just easier for people because you know driving driving an hour was too hard right and now they can just go downstairs and hop on the computer and we're having as much fun as i think we were in person it's kind of nice to be in person. There's probably a little bit of advantage in being in person. But yeah, one is like, you know, keep your friends group wide, right? You, know, you, you maximize the chances of finding a group by connecting with as many people as possible and making our desires to play D&D known. So tell people you're a D&D fan, right? Talk, talk to people about it. And you'll get some people who are like, huh, interesting. And then you got others who are like, oh, I always want to try that. And maybe some of the ones that want to try it, you, you start a game with them. And then there's like how to keep it going once you've got it. And that's sort of a different topic. But I think that those are those are probably the best tips that I've been able to that I've heard and that I've been able to pass along 
you know. So then there's like how to find online, and one is like start playing games. You know, we were I was talking about this with with my wife. You know, start playing games is a, gr a good way to find games to play with DMs who are willing to to run games, and you know, you pay them in many cases, but that means they're a bit more dedicated to help you run the game you want. So I think that there's an advantage there. Yeah, good good topic. How to find how to find players? Really really tricky topic and and hard to do and. You know, the nice, we are at the right time to find groups, right? We are, the game has never been more popular than it is now, which means we're more likely to find people that either have played it, are playing it, or want to play it than we would have 10 years ago. So we're at a really good spot to be able to find people. And yeah, so I would, uh, you know, so here's the article, finding finding players is the article. I don't know if I pasted that in there already or not. I did, but I'll paste it again. And uh, yeah, good luck. I hope I hope you find a game. Because it's obviously, I think it's important. I think if you're a fan of D&D, it is the best way to be creative and relaxed with your friends and family. And that's, there's, there's little more important in the world. I don't know if there's anything more important than that. Yeah, so some other topics I wanted to talk about. How did my game go? So I recorded two videos of me preparing a one-shot game. The one-shot game was called Keep of the Black Gate. It was a game set in the Shadow Marches of Eberron. And I spent... Two, roughly two hours prepping for the game, starting with what game world and then what region of the world. And then I used the Adventure Generators and Uncovered Secrets, the two products that I've uh, released to patrons at patreon.com slash lifeflourish. I used those guides to help stir up my imagination to come up with a game. And by the end of the two hours, I felt very solid about the game and I ran it and it was a great game. I asked, I, you know, as I, as I often do, I ask my, my wife how she liked it on a scale of one to 10 because I like metrics. And she was like, well, you know, pretty good. And I, and she goes, oh, cultists again. You get knocked one point because of cultists. And I said, that's fair. I, I get it. And she said, so that would be like an 8.5. And I was like, an 8.5 after a minus one because of cultists. I'm like, that is pretty great. So she was very happy with it. The one area of the game where I felt unprepared when I was running it was the boss fight. I didn't. I knew I had some monsters in mind, but I didn't really plan out what the boss fight was going to look like, how it was going to work. And it came out okay because I'm pretty good on my feet, and I came up with some good ways to improvise the boss fight. And I had like I took a break right when they went into the room, so it was easy for me to spend you know five or ten minutes kind of thinking up okay exactly how I'm going to engineer this boss fight. And one nice thing about how I engineered it is I had seen now what the capabilities of the characters were. I knew what kind of characters they were, what they could do, and what kind of stuff I was going to have to do. And so, yeah, so I was able to kind of whip up the boss fight at the end and it, and it, and it ended up working fine. People were happy. It was a little frustrating because I think we had, we had two paladins, two rogues and a fighter where the, where the five characters, two paladins, two rogues and a fighter. And very few of them had ranged attacks at all. And they were fighting a gate, not a gazer, uh, a spectator, a, a small beholder, right? And they're flying 30 feet in the air. So one of the characters was playing an Aarakocra who could fly. So he flew up and grabbed onto it and tried to wrestle it to the ground so the other people could hit it and wasn't successful, but uh, managed to stay up there anyway. And they still managed to beat it. But two of the characters didn't have any ranged attacks at all. They had like hand axes and stuff. And I'll tell you, as a, a tip for players is all, no matter what character build you build, you're always kind of built around the idea of like, I'm going to charge in and, great, and hit it with my great, my great sword. Better be prepared for a ranged attack. Better be prepared for what if I get stuck in place and I can't move anywhere? Or what if a thing I'm fighting is in the air, right? And as a player, 
grab some javelins, right? Javelins are a really nice, cheap item that let you use your strength for attacks and damage from range. They're not nearly as good as your great weapon fighter, great sword or whatever. But if you're a strength-based character, always have some javelins on hand. They cost one gold piece each or something like that. You know, so number one tip for players, especially melee characters, carry javelins. Always have ways to deal with both ranged attacks and close attacks, right? Or else you're going to get stuck. So that's my player tip. Uh, for a DM tip, something that worked really well is I, I knew that this group, like all groups, love to gank the boss, right? If they see the boss and they've heard about the boss and they know that the boss is up, they're going to just zero in on that boss and beat the crap out of him. Happens very frequently, and you know it's not it's not uncommon at all. And there's a few ways to there's a few ways to deal with this, but a way that I whipped up, I just kind of pulled out from the days of yore and used yesterday was that the boss could redirect damage done to him to his minions, and he had six cultist minions, six or eight, I think it was six. He had six cultist minions, and every time he took damage from an attack, he could transfer that damage to one of the minions. And it meant that like, if they came up and did, like one person ran up and hit him with a backstab and did like 21 damage. And he redirected all 21 points over to one of the minions who only had nine and it killed the minion outright, right? But he, he, he took zero from it. And the characters figured, the players figured it out and said, okay, wait a minute. He's actually harder to hit than those guys are. Those guys are weaker. Why are we hitting him when all he can do is pass his damage over? We're doing a bunch of damage that's not being directed to him at all. And it's all going to the minions. And what was interesting about it is I thought they might be frustrated by this. I thought they might think it was too gamey or like, oh, that sucks. Or, you know, it's not even a reaction for him to do it. He's just doing it all the time. And I thought they'd feel bad about it. But I asked my wife and I and the other players and they're like, no, that was cool. Like it was a, it was a thing we had to deal with. It was a little bit of a puzzle as part of the boss fight. And I just wanted it so that the boss wasn't killed in two hits because he was a cult fanatic and he had 30 some hit points and he was going to get killed really easily. And for a cult fanatic with 30 some hit points, he survived like almost a hundred damage because he was able to redirect off to the cult, the cultists. And then the characters changed their strategy and chased the cultists down while he was then doing his stuff. So that, that worked really well. And then I, I also did another trick, which is an easy one, which is you, you do phases. You can do a harder fight, like a particularly a deadly fight, by doing separate phases. So phase one was a gibbering mouther and the cult fanatic who are by the gate, and then six cultists on each side and then the characters. And the other neat thing is that the gibbering mouther protected the cult fanatic as well because they'd run up and now they're in the gibbering mouther's aura and they could be stuck in place or they could be they could you know they could they could have the confusion of the gibbering mouther on them and you know two of the characters got kind of stuck up there and like oh man you know we have to deal with this gibbering mouther and there was like this slight chance that if they rolled like a four five or six on a d8 that meant they ran in a random direction or something like that i think or maybe it was a seven or eight something like that and then if they rolled a one on a 1d4, they ran through the gateway into the realm of Zoriat. So it was like, you're, you know, and there was this real risk of like two, three bad rolls, a failed save, a bad roll on the confusion, and then a bad roll on the direction you run. Three, that was equivalent of like three failed saves, and you could run into another plane of existence, right? And I don't even know. I didn't even, at the moment, I was like, I don't even know what'll happen if that happens. Like, would they come out with all tentacles on them? Might, might be kind of cool. I wasn't sure. And maybe I just, you know, it was the end of the game. Maybe they're dead right? Maybe we don't see them again. So I don't know, but it was kind of interesting. <clears throat> so 
yeah, so that idea of like steering boss damage over to minions is a is a nice trick. And if you look at like the amulet of a shield guardian, you know, that's a good one to use for like high level, like you know, a, like a lich, a, a high level monster like a lich could have like an amulet that lets them spread damage to minions and they could be big ones. Like imagine you have a shield guardian that is actually an iron golem or maybe two iron golems and the damage you take is then split between the iron golems and you take zero as long as both golems are up and one golem is now you're taking half and if both golems are down, then you take full. It's a great way to give like a lich like a thousand hit points and make sure that you're not gonna just destroy that lich in one round. So that 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 the boss idea of the boss being able to redirect damage is a a nice quick trick to throw in your back pocket. And maybe it's, small guys like cultists, an army of cultists, and the cultists are falling over dead. And then the players can see that they're making progress. Or maybe it's real big things like a lich with a pair of iron golems, and they're able to transfer the damage that they take to the iron golems. So that worked That worked really well. And, and I like that. And I'd say overall, the rest of the game worked well. If you're watching this video or listen, if you're watching this video or you're listening to this on the podcast and you're like, what is he talking about? What, what game and what videos? Both of those videos are going to be coming out each Wednesday for the next two Wednesdays. So this coming Wednesday, and you're probably listening to this or watching this on Tuesday. I think you're listening to this on Tuesday. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the first of the prep videos will come out. And then one week from then on Wednesday, the next prep video will come out. So you'll see it's a two-part episode of me prepping this game, The Keep of the Black Gate. And now you hear about how it went before you've heard about how I prepped it. So that's kind of interesting. But mostly I want to talk about that steer the boss damage. So I had this on my notes for last week, and it was thoughts about the Matt Mercer effect and critical role. And I've... I've my views haven't changed on this since I first really started thinking about it and, and started considering this topic. The Mercer effect, if you were not, so let me, let me rephrase. So, so just in case you live under a rock completely and never heard of it, Critical Role is the most popular live play D&D stream in the world. And they are very, very popular, very huge audiences. And it is a, a bunch of voice actors who play D&D, led by a fellow named Matt Mercer. Matt Mercer has been DMing this. He's now run two full campaigns this way that have been hundreds of episodes each and literally thousands, I think thousands of hours of, of video that you can watch. Uh, like four to five hours, four to five hours a week for many weeks. And really tremendously uh, well-produced show and a and a very, very popular show. So there was a, there, there've been lots of talks, including by Matt Mercer about this thing called the Mercer effect. So I should, I should go back a little bit further. I believe there, there is good data to show that the recent popularity of D&D is due to the streaming games. And since Critical Role is the most popular streaming game by a large degree, you could say that Critical Role has a large amount of responsibility for the popularity of D&D. People argue against this, mostly because they're like, well, I don't watch it, so therefore other people don't watch it. But Wizards of the Coast believes this. And they've done big, they've had, they've commissioned big polls and surveys to try to find out how people learn about D&D these days. And what they found, this was a couple years ago, they found that more people knew about D&D from streaming than any other source, including from friends and family. And for the past 50 years or 45 years, it had been friends and family. The most, like, the most likely way you were to hear about D&D was through family and friends. And that pivoted a couple of years ago to streaming games. And that's a huge change. Like that's a big decades wide change in how people are finding D&D. And the popularity of D&D, I think, cannot be understated. Like it is really, really popular. And it's more popular now than it's ever been. And you can look at a bunch of different metrics to figure that out. And I have. And so you have to trust me on that. So lots of people have learned how to play D&D 
or, and learned about D&D through streaming games. And so the concern was that Critical Role and Matt, Matt Mercer in particular and Critical Role overall is such a well-produced show with such amazing players and an amazing DM that is it setting the bar too high? Is it creating this thing known as the Mercer effect where people are actually held back from dungeon mastering because they, they feel like they can't be as good as Matt Mercer is, right? And people talk about that. And Matt Mercer says, like, don't try to be me, just be yourself. Like, just be a DM. And that's very good advice, right? And lots of people talk about this. And actually, there was a really good video recently done by Professor Dungeon Master on the Dungeon Craft uh, YouTube channel. Let's pull that. Let's pull that up. YouTube and Dungeon Craft. Dungeon Craft Mercer. Uh, the Matt Mercer effect, what I learned from watching Critical Role by... Um, by Professor Dungeon Master, right? Really fun channel, by the way. I really like this YouTube channel a lot, so I'd recommend it. And so he had a very good video about it. And in large parts, I, I think overall, I just, I just agree, right? I agree with what he says on this. I think that his, his points are valid. And so what are those points? And those points are that if you squint, like my, my point is, if you squint, it's a D&D game, right? What you're watching is a D&D game. And is he a professional voice actor? Yes. Is, does he spend a tremendous amount of time on his game? Yes. Are his players super invested in his game? Yes, they are, right? And, but, but really, deep down, it's just a D&D &D game. And when people talk about like, oh, we'll never be able to reach the pinnacle. And it's like, so I haven't actually watched a lot of Critical Role recently. We, were, we watched a bunch of episodes of season two. I watched a couple of episodes of season one. And then I kind of, I couldn't keep up. Like a lot of people, I couldn't keep up. But I did, I was, I saw the end and I talked, I think in a previous show about the, like what's a level 20 D&D &D game look like? What's the best D&D &D game you can imagine? And I was like, probably the best one you can imagine is Vecna Ascended, the, the last episode of cam the first campaign of Critical Role. Like I'm, I'm, I can't even imagine the amount of work that went into that episode, but it's crazy, right? But then the result is you don't need to have a level 20 game to run a good D&D &D game. A level one D&D &D game, like grabbing the starter set with some friends around the table is a fine way to go. And any D&D any &D game is a good D&D &D game. Not quite true, but most D&D &D games are great D&D &D games. It doesn't have to be the best. And that I think relates to here too. You don't have to run Critical Role to run a good D&D &D game, right? And you don't have to be Matt Mercer to run a good D&D &D game. And the reality is like, I watched the second to last episode of the current campaign. My wife and I watched it. They're having dick and fart jokes like everything else, right? They, you know, Matt Mercer put out this like crazy hand-painted terrain and the guy's like, I moved behind the penis looking thing over there, right? And so you're like, well, okay, that's pretty much like my game goes, right? And, and you know, so the Critical Role is a bunch of dick and fart jokes, right? And it's like, it's the number one. So don't worry about it is my point. That like, it doesn't, you know, it's just D&D. Right. It's just D&D. And maybe your voices aren't there. Maybe the like the depth of the characters aren't there. In, like like the, the interaction of the characters aren't as as high in your D&D &D game. That's fine. Like, relax. I know it's like the worst advice in the world, but it's, you know, it's hard not to give it, which is deep breath, relax, have fun. Your friends are there to have a good time with you. Keep it simple. Run a D&D &D game. Right. Like. And I know that's not great advice. And I, so I don't want to give it often, right? But it's easy to get wound up on this. And everybody feels that pressure. Everybody. There's a reason why I spent two hours prepping that game on Saturday. For four people that I know and love dearly, right? And that have played with me many times before. And I'm pretty sure I'm not going to disappoint them. But I was still like, no, I want to put this work in it. I haven't played with these guys in a while. I really want it to be good, right? Like, I'm nervous about it. Everybody's nervous about it. Performance is nerve-wracking. And what we're doing when we run a game is performance, right? So 
stage fright doesn't go away. It just gets familiar, right? And the more familiar are with it, the more we deal with it, we recognize, do I have what I need? That's why I always ask at the end of my prep sessions, like, how do I feel? Do I feel prepared? Because that's all that really matters. It doesn't matter if I am prepared. It matters if I feel prepared. And if I feel prepared, I'm going to go in confident. And hopefully it doesn't completely unravel in the first five minutes of the game. Generally, it doesn't. And, and things will be fine, right? Yeah, so my argument for the Mercer effect is it's it's mostly in our heads. And especially, I think DMs are oversensitive to the idea of the Mercer effect. I think by and large, most of the time, our players are not looking for that level. They just want to sit around and have a good time. My feeling is that if you squint, right? If you if you just kind of shave off some of the, you know, some of the some of the detail of watching a critical role game. It looks like a D&D game. It's a bunch of people, they're all friends, they're hanging out at a table, he's telling a story, things are going on. Is it a very high quality, high class D&D game with players that are very invested and a DM who really knows what's going on? Yes. Is it an example of a really good D&D game? Yes. Some people don't think so. Some people think like, no, that's actually a bad representation of a D&D game. I don't agree with them. But generally speaking, that like it's just a D&D game. Right? Don't worry about it. And don't so what I would offer is like, "A, Certainly don't feel like you have to be Matt Mercer or that the Mercer effect is in effect and that your players are not going to like your game. Does it happen? Are there players who are who expect more from a DM because they watch this? Sure. Does it happen often? I wouldn't I don't I don't think so. I would best I would guess not. So uh, anecdotally, I have found that pre-streaming voices were not an expectation, but post-streaming it has. I don't know. I don't think so. Like, I, 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 yeah, I haven't done a poll on that, so I don't know. Some people, so the rank says, I certainly feel like I should be doing voices. Well, try it, right? Like, you know, give it a shot. Like make silly voices, right? I do it. I do silly voices. And then sometimes I'm like, wow, I can't keep that voice up. And then I stop doing the silly voice. So, you know, it, it works. So yeah, don't, you know, we don't have to look at Matt Mercer as the benchmark that we should ascribe to. But also I, I don't think that benchmark is as high as we think it is. Cause I think we look and it's a bunch of people making dick and fart jokes in the most popular D&D stream ever, right? So yeah, and, right. Some people bring up he has the benefit of pro players. He does have the benefit of pro players, right? And and some players want that level of engagement and some don't. So worry about you and your group, right? And and do what's fun for you and your group. Don't worry about the Mercer effect. Use I think it's worth watching because I like I learn stuff every time I watch it, right? So if you have the time and the energy and, and the interest in watching stream games, watch them because you learn a lot as a DM. You learn a lot of tricks. Sometimes there are tricks are like, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. How would I do it? And you do it differently. There was there was one where I, I watched Critical Role and he did something and I was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. And I grabbed it and I ran with it. It gives you ideas, even if it's not something you see directly, you get ideas. So streaming games, I think, has been a huge benefit to D&D, both in the popularity of the game, showing people what D&D looks like, which I think is huge. Like before, there was never a way to do that. Do you remember every clunky, like beginning of a Dungeon Master's Guide that said like, DM, well, here's the thing that happens. Player, here's what I do, player. And it would show you, they had to like show in text how a D&D game played out. And it looked weird, right? Well, now you just watch them. You go and you watch a D&D game, right? And there's a lot of good ones to watch. Oh, that's what D&D looks like, right? And I don't think they're setting false expectations. I think that they're showing what D&D looks like to people who don't know. And we can learn a lot from them. So there's tremendous value in streaming games to this hobby, tremendous. And I think, you know, as far as it building a, a false or a, a, you know, building a, a level we can't get to, relax, it'll be okay. You don't, there isn't any, you don't have anything to prove to anything other than you and your players, right? So that's my, that's my thought about that. It's not as, it's not, I don't think the bar is set as high as you think for one. And you don't have a bar anyway. So yeah, watch other streams, right? Watch, watch, watch. If you have the opportunity, I think it's really useful. It's a tremendous 
you know, think about the money that went behind all that stuff. Think about the energy that goes behind that stuff. We never had access to all that. And now we have access to more video than we can watch. And this happened in like 10 years. It's crazy. So that's really good. All right. So next thought is on Frost Maiden. I had some Frost Maiden thoughts, and I'm probably gonna talk about this more when I'm doing the Frost Maiden prep, but a couple of big things that came out. And the first one is, which leads into my next, my next topic. Although, you know what? I'm gonna actually, because it's already 30 minutes in, we're gonna move that topic later, and we're gonna grab the third-party product reviews, and we're gonna look at some third-party products. So I have two products. Last time I did five or something, and it was too many. So today, we're gonna look at two third-party products. The first one is done by 2C Gaming and was written by two friends of mine, Ryan Service and Grant Ellis. And it is a source book called Grimworld. And it was a Kickstarter run by 2C Gaming a couple years ago, I think. And it got released last year. I happen to have it right here. So Grimworld is a you know 180-page source book of high fantasy uh fairy i would say like fairy tale style fantasy and it's got a lot of neat things uh going on in this book it's a very different style of campaign world and what i what i dig what something that 2c gaming in particular is doing that i think is great is they're taking these really different angles on campaign campaign books right and we have grim world here and we have the adventure maidens one that's coming out uh which which kickstarted so i'm sure i'll be reviewing that when that's out but really interesting takes on campaign worlds. And it is a, so it's a fairy tale fantasy book, I would say. It's got a lot of, of, of cool things going. I spent, I spent some time on Friday kind of going through it. And what I, what I dig about it, for, one thing that it does that's very interesting is it has a different role for the dungeon master. They have a special name for him, which, which is, I forget. I'll find it here. Beautiful artwork. Really interesting land, but also a lot of sort of an, an interesting take on how the world works. And even changing up the pillars, the pillars of X, you know, the pillars that exist in 5e, they sort of have a different take on the pillars. So uh, a fair amount of, of, of history in here, which is what you want in a, in a good campaign world. And I'm trying to find the, where they talk about how to play. So the narrador. So they have this, this role called the narrador, which is, an actual, I think is kind of like the narrow, the in-world narrator for a fairy tale, right? And the idea is that the DM takes on the role of the narrator, but the narrator is actually a character in the world. So the things that the narrator is doing are having an effect on the world, but they are a known entity, right? They're a known entity inside the world and changing the world. And they have these things called the masks. Right, and, and there, are four, there are four masks that the narrador wears. And you can think of these masks as, so they, they have the same like fairy, you know, fairy style, autumn, winter, summer, spring. But they also are sort of like the, the four pillars of how the game works. And we'll, we'll find it here. So they have the thing about the narrador and I think they have where the, the masks uh, are in here somewhere. And you know that that's that idea of the narrator being part of the world. Yeah, like the DM in the '80s cartoon is exactly right. You know, a good example. The other thing, so so one interesting thing is they have all of this. You know, they have all of this fairy tale stuff. But 2C Gaming and Ryan Service in particular is known for design of mechanics, mechanical design. And there's a good deal of mechanic design in here and, and certainly very powerful creatures in here. There's a lich that's in here that's one of the most dangerous and powerful liches I've ever seen. So it's not just like 
you know, totally, you know, it's not this like soft fairy tale thing the whole time. You will face, look at this, like fell and entropia, right? And, and, and big monsters, big scary monsters. So it does have this very different, beautiful artwork, wonderful design, excellent editing, as we would expect, you know, from a good book. So here are the masks. This is what I wanted, you know, is the mask of battle, right? So this is your combat, your combat focused mask that you wear. And you think about it, like what it means in the world. Like when you're wearing this mask, how does that affect in the world? Eudoxia, the mask of intrigue and mystery, right? This is sort of your storytelling sort of mask, wonder and suspense of the unknown, right? Daphne, when compassion and empathy, this is your sort of character interaction, relationship building, that sort of thing. And then Genshegra, when the journey outshines the destination, this is about the, the physical exploration of the world. And I like this idea that not only do you have sort of four pillars that sort of separate combat, intrigue and mystery, inner, inner, interaction and interrelationship and exploration into these four game pillars, but they have like a in-world design and sort of an in-world idea about like when the different, you know, if you know kind of fairy tale stuff about how the seasons sort of interact, when the winter court comes up, what goes on with that. Really, really interesting style. And I, and I, I you know, it's like hard to get your head around it, like thinking about the DM as a player in the game, but, but it's there. Really, really fantastic stuff. So the whole book has things like this. That's just sort of one one part of it that I that I grabbed. It's got new heritage, you know, new heritages. It's got new cool backgrounds. A uh, lot of really, you know, a lot of really just fun ways to kind of shake up D and D. It is. So if you remember from last week, I talked about 5e hardcore, which was sort of a wrapper for 5e, and this is also kind of a wrapper for 5e, right? You take this campaign book. And you wrap it around what you already know about 5e, and it completely changes the game. It's the, like the game that you're playing is 5e underneath, but it's totally different in the approach and the style and the, and the atmosphere and everything else. And what I love about this, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this book in particular, is it breaks away from the grim, dark stuff that we've had. You know, this, this, we, D&D, I feel like over the last couple of years, fifth edition, has really like doubled down on like harsh, brutal, you know, killer stuff. And, and and most of that is brought from like three books that have come out recently. Descent into Avernus, in which you have to go save a city from the layer of hell. Rime of the Frostbane, where everybody's freezing to death under a sky that no longer has a sun. And then you have uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which is all about running horror in your D&D games. I feel like they've like tripled down on the horror aspect of D&D. And I want some whimsy and, and, and stuff. And Grimworld is about whimsy. It is dangerous and there's dark stuff that happens, but it is about a true fairy fantasy world. And I love, so I, I like that optimism. Just look at like, look at the tree sprite with a dress, right? Wearing a dress that's the petals of a flower. You know, badger guy, right? Here's an anime, you know, t Tin Man with a big wizard hat on. Like it's just, it's fun, right? And we, that's what we want is fun. So I really, I really dig this book. There was one other thing that they had in here, which is they have these sort of quests. I forget what they call them. Whenever I scroll heavy in a book like this. So they have these sort of like walking avatars. It's almost like in 13th age where you have the, oh, what are they called in 13th age? You know, you, you have the, the sort of the main players in 13th age, right? But you, I froze up my browser window. Damn, maybe it'll, hey, look, it worked. So they, they have these creatures that are sort of like the, the main avatars. And it, 
it it felt right out of never-ending story. You remember the huge turtle and never-ending story, right? And and there's creatures that exist that are like that. I think I think maybe I I don't know where they are in the book. They have stats and they're very dangerous. So if you were to like actually there they are. If they're actually to do it, you know, to deal in combat, they have different alignments too. But they also are quest givers. They are they are they have quests that are tied to them that characters can get involved in, right? So beyond having like interesting mechanics, and they do, because again, 2C products have really interesting mechanics for, for bosses, for monsters in general. They are big, you know, quest drivers, worldwide quest drivers in this game. And I think that that is a really neat, a really neat way to go it. To, to go. So yeah, so this book, once again, is, as I freeze my browser again, we'll go to a different one, uh, Grim World, written by Grant Ellis and Ryan Service as at 2C Gaming. I think there are hardcover or hard copy versions available, but I don't know where, but I know that the PDF is available on the 2C Gaming website here for, for 20 bucks. It is worth it. It is a very cool book. If you're interested in sort of the high fantasy, you want to see a different take on how you can sort of wrap a wrapper around D&D. Icons, that there was, that's what they're called in 13th Age. Thank you, yes. So yeah, in Grimworld, they, you know, they have these things that are like icons, these, these you know, representative creatures of the world that have their own sort of quest you know, quest wrappers around them. They put you on big quests, worldwide quests. Does Amazon have a, is it on, is it available on Amazon in hardcover? I don't see. Oh yeah. So the hardcover, there it is. Hardcover is 50 bucks on Amazon. So yeah, if you want a hardcover version and it is pretty, you can, you can pick it up there. Somebody will have to buy it though. Cause there's only one left in stock. Who's going to buy it? Beautiful book. And Grant and, and Ryan are, are two awesome dudes. So that was Grimworld. The other one I wanna talk about is one that's been around for a while. It's done by a company called Absolute Tabletop. We can go ahead and get rid of Grimworld, get rid of that. It's a, it's a product made by Absolute Tabletop called Oath of the Frozen King. It is a shorter book. So this is 62 pages. It is 10 bucks on drive-through RPG and you can pick up the soft cover premium color book for 15. And that's worth it. I would, if you're going to pick it up, I would pick it up today because all the premium color stuff is going to go up in price. In fact, I might, I might go buy it because I think it's pretty cool. So let me paste the link for this. And Oath of the Frozen King, Absolute Tabletop did a few of these. They did another one. Let's, let's go to Absolute Tabletop's page here. Take a look. They did another one that I really dug. Uh, so they did the A Dead Man's Guide to Dragon Grin, which is more of a full campaign book. But they also did this uh, Shadows Over Drift Chapel. And they refer to these as adventure kits, right? And and then they're doing some new stuff with mecha, you know, mecha stuff. But I don't know anything about that. So I really was fascinated by the take that they had on this. Instead of giving you a published adventure with a beginning, middle, and end, and lots of stuff in between. They give you a, a small adventure kit that fits around an area and that you, you, you roll randomly and you determine things randomly and you sort of build around it, right? And so it's heavy, heavy on the random tables. Beautiful art, right? Really cool design. Definitely worth the 10 bucks. I definitely pick it up. It's done by uh, Tim Kearney is the project lead. Tim Kearney, Matt Click, Michael Baker, and James Kearney all did the writing and editing for this. It was kickstarted. This one was, I don't know if Shadows Over Drift Chapel was kickstarted. And it came out, I think a couple of years ago. This is 2017, so this is four years old. Four years, right? I should have done something before then. Really neat idea. It, it has a central theme to it, 
right? A central, a central goal around this whole, this whole thing. But the idea is you are building your adventure from this package of components. And I love that idea. And Ruins of the Grendel Root almost followed this exact model. I almost said, I think it was Grendel Root, where the original version of Ruins of the Grendel Root was a location and a bunch of random stuff. And the DM was going to determine what happened where. And I went with that idea and early feedback I got from people who read it was like, I, I feel like you're making me do all the work and you know what the right answer is and we should just go with that. And then I said, okay, we're going to have a lot of random components to Ruins of the Grendel Root and we do, but we're going to put things in certain places and then give a lot of variance to the, the DMs to be able to choose what goes where. So Ruins of the Grendel Root is more like a traditional book of adventures, but it, 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 I intended for people to be able to manipulate it. It just said like, here's what we recommend, but you can be free to do what you want. And if you read Ruins of the Grendel Root and you look at different areas, it'll say like, you know, this area has three zombies in it. If you want to cut for time, there are no zombies, right? It gives options for like, what if you want to have a battle, you don't want to have a battle. This one is far more procedurally generated, right? And it has this neat idea of rolling a handful of dice, right? They call it dice drop adventure generator, right? And really interesting steps. Grab a blank sheet of paper, grab a fistful of polyhedral dice, one full set of four, a six, an eight, a 10, a 12, and a 20. You roll it all and it generates each die generates a different specific thing and where the dice fall actually creates like a, like a point crawl map, right? So you throw your dice, the dice all land in different areas and different numbers that shows what the layout of the dungeon is like. And then it shows you what's in there based on which dice landed where really interesting idea, right? I, 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 I was fascinated by this when I first read it, both this one and shadows of a drift chapel do the same thing. And it's really interesting because it, you know, you're sort of watching the adventure get generated while, while you're running it, you know, and then it's got the, the grisly truths of the actual adventure. It's got a, you know, what, and then it's got sort of like, what's the adventure supposed to be, right? It has that, but then it has a lot of things like every area that you go to has sort of a different thing going on, you know, different quests that are up there, different twists that occur. So heavy, heavy use of random randomness, which I am fascinated by. I've been fascinated by these days. Beautiful, I lo look at this isometric map, right? This isometric map is really, really neat. And it has overland map. You know, if you don't like isometric and you want a battle map, it has the battle map as well. So, and then it has like expansion rooms. You wanna build upon it, you wanna add some stuff, here's some expansion rooms, each of them with kind of fantastic features, right? Frozen table, big pit, weird hole in the floor, weird, you know, frozen lake stuff, really kind of neat. And each one, all throughout, you'll, you'll keep hitting them and you'll see, look, sights, sounds, sensations, right? This is a big one. People often talk about like, you know, how you need to, you know, hit all the senses, right? It's got encounters, but the encounters are not necessarily gonna happen everywhere. So really, really cool book, non-player, non bunch of non-player characters with really good artwork for the non-player characters. Look at this, art is fantastic. The art and design is really, really good. New monster, you know, all kinds of different stuff here. Is that, you know? the Frozen King, and they use a different style for their monster design, right? They're, they're doing this sort of like, if you want to do it at different levels, what kind of damage do they do? I, I, don't, I didn't dig into the mechanics. It's like, does it all work? But I like that idea of like, look, you know, one neat thing, and I wish, I wish more, I'm, I think more people are going to do this, and I wish we would see more of it, is like, take a different approach to 5e. Like, what if monsters were built differently? Like, you, you don't like how the monster manual works, you don't like CR, make a new monster manual that's completely different, right? So rewards, yeah. So I, I really just dug, this resonated with me a lot. 
of the idea of a an, an adventure kit that we know that published adventures are never run the way they're written. So why are we writing them procedurally? Why are we writing them in a big sequence? Like why not write them into sort of random components, right? And I and I I dig that a lot. Here's a really cool like encounter events, right? And there's lots of them, 50 of them it looks like. So this is Oath of the Frozen King by Absolute Tabletop. You can pick it up on DriveThruRPG. I highly recommend it. It's really cool. 10 bucks. It just gets you thinking about adventures differently, even if you don't run it, right? It just gets you thinking about adventures. And there's lots of tables you could use for lots of different games. I bet you it has a really good Rhyme of the Frostmaiden connection too. I, I would not be surprised if there was a good, you know, I bet if you sat and thought about it for a while, you could definitely fit Frozen King and Rhyme of the Frostmaiden together and have like more options. But the problem with Frostmaiden that I'm having is I, it, it's more material than I can use, right? So I, I kind of have the opposite problem on this. So that is Oath of the Frozen King. So we've talked about our third-party products. I'll, I'll have a couple more that we'll talk about next week. So Frostmaiden, speaking of Frostmaiden, chapter one is just too damn big. There are 13 quests in chapter one. And you are likely to end up adding, or I don't know if you're likely to, I ended up adding more quests of my own, which means I had like 15 or 16 possible quests that occur. Now, certainly the characters aren't expected to complete all of the quests, but if your players are, are, are into them, they might end up doing a lot of them. And you don't wanna limit them you, you don't want to limit them by saying like, well, you can go do that quest, but you're not gonna get anything for it, right? That's kind of, it's lame and it's sort of outside the mechanics. The idea that like they can't level to fifth until they actually leave chapter one and they're just burning time doing doing quests otherwise. It's like, but that's kind of lame. There's a spoiler. There, there's a little bit of spoilers in this, but not not too much, I don't think. I don't think, I'll keep the spoilers really light. And in fact, I'm gonna keep this second point on the, the can you entirely remove the question mark? I'm gonna I'm gonna save that for the Frost Maiden talk. So in a few minutes we'll talk about that. But chapter one, one of the issues is like tier one of D D, first through fourth level, can happen really quickly. And in in Adventures League, for example, it's one it's basically three adventures, right? It's first to second, second to third, third to fourth. So three adventures can take you to fourth level really quickly. So basically, if you look at chapter one of Frost Maiden, three, three quests could be all that you need to get them to fourth. And that would feel reasonable because it's not like you're gonna get done with all of these quests in one session. So how many sessions do you expect first to fourth level to take, right? Or maybe you say four to get you to fifth, right? That you have one that first to second, second to third, third to fourth, fourth to fifth, four adventures. But we have 13, right? And so you're gonna offer up some of these and they're gonna, they're gonna out-level the quest really quickly. So what I'm thinking is for chapter one, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably gonna offer a guide on this and I'm still not done with chapter one, right? I'm like, I've been playing it for 18 sessions and I'm not done with chapter one yet. It's a big chapter too. It's like a, it's it's like a hundred pages of the book or something like that. So, my my recommendation is look through the thirteen quests, cut half of them out, figure out which ones you don't want to bother to run, and cut them out. And I have I started a list of like which ones I would probably cut out, uh, and which ones I would probably keep. And I I think that if you cut out half of them that takes you down to about six to seven. And that gives you enough options that the players still have choices they can make and quests that they won't do, but not so many that, not so many that they end up spending their entire time in chapter one. Because the reality is players want to be 
tier two. They fifth level is a big level jump, and everything changes. Now D and D changes from fifth level, and I and I think that adventures, campaign adventures in particular, could do a better job of focusing them on the the fun part of D and D, and that's what we're going to talk about. Yam shaped adventure design. What the hell is a yam shaped adventure? A yam shaped adventure is sort of a reverse hourglass, right? It starts really narrow and it expands slowly and then it's big in the middle and then it closes back down again and then gets really narrow at the end. And actually, a lot of the Wizards of the Coast adventures are yam shaped adventures. They are short in the intros. They sort of get you into the middle part. They're big in the middle and then they narrow back down again. I would argue that Tomb of Annihilation is that way. Uh, I think Curse of Strahd is kind of that way. A lot of the published adventures are, are you know, have this sort of reverse hourglass shape. And I think that's a really good shape. And I would suggest if you're building your own campaign or you're publishing anything, if you're one of the rare people that is actually publishing a, like a big adventure series. And if I think about how I'm going to do it, uh, I'm probably going to do it differently. And the way I would do it differently, if I were building a campaign adventure, I would start with a very clear first level adventure that is designed for first level that isn't going to kill the characters with ochre jellies or, or, or manticores, you know, and is designed for first level exclusively. And that all that adventure does is get him to second level. For Rime of the Frostmaiden, for example, that adventure would be the Foaming Mugs quest in Bryn Shander, right? The Foaming Mugs quest is very solid first level quest. Great way to get him to first to second level. And it should be the one you run first. It should be just declared outright that this is what you should run because I think it's a good one. I think many of the other ones are not. So I think having like a you know, one dedicated one, and then you might say, okay, now there are three quests that are out there. And those three quests can take you to, to third. You, you, you pick two of those three and that takes you to third to fourth. Right, from first from second to third and third to fourth. They take two. And then the other one is dropped off. That one you don't do, right? That 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 third quest. And then you have another maybe two quests. And they pick that one that takes them from fourth to fifth, right? Something like that. But you basically want to have a small number of quests that take you from first to fifth level. Maybe it's only five, right? Or maybe it's maybe it's only five or six, and two of them you end up not doing. But you don't need more than six. Because if you have more than six, it's too many options and they're gonna wanna do them and they're, they're not tuned and they're not right. And then you jump to tier two. And this is where the yam part of the yam-shaped adventure builds up. And there you have a lot of quests, the five to 10. First of all, it's a lot of levels, right? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. It's six levels of, of, of content, five adventures, and then to 11th, right? So you have a lot of levels in there and Characters are really powerful once they hit fifth level, right? A fifth to seventh level character, you know, isn't nearly as big a power jump as like fourth to fifth is, right? So I, I would say that a campaign should focus on fifth to 11th level, right? And that that is the bulk of a campaign. That's the big part of a campaign and a lot of big hairy stuff. If you want to have 12 or 13 major quest arcs, stick them in there. Maybe you could even have more. I, I didn't work out like how many should you have, but I don't know. Not unheard of to have 15 different quests. Again, you don't do them all, right? But it's also okay to slow down the leveling from five to 10 because it's the most fun part of the game. Characters are robust and can do a lot of stuff. You know, they, they multiple attacks and fireballs and big spell ranges, right? So, and, and the game is at its most fun, right? 
comp characters are complicated. Monsters are big and powerful. You know, there's a lot of range of, of balance that occurs in there. The shenanigans and the shenanigans hasn't really fully picked up. It starts to pick up later. Seventh, when you get to fourth level spells and certainly ninth, when you get to fifth level spells, now you start to see some real shenanigans. But generally speaking, you can manage it. It's when you hit 11th level and beyond, it can become really hard to challenge the characters. It becomes really hard to design anything when you don't know what the characters are like. And that's when you narrow the yam back down again. And if I were designing it, I would almost offer up like a sh I would almost go more linear again and offer, I would put the bulk of my attention on that fifth to 10th level range. And I would have fewer quests and adventures beyond 11th level. And then I'd probably offer up like a couple of pages about what you might do if you wanted to take it all the way to 20. But basically you hand the reins over to the DM and say, you, you figure it out. You know what your characters are like. Now they've got all these intricate character arcs that you've developed. Here are a bunch of things that you could do and you can go with it. And that's kind of what I, again, I don't want to, yeah, so we'll use Grendelgut as an example, but it's actually not fitting the model that I'm talking about. But if I was redoing Grendelroot, if I was doing a, something else like Grendelroot, I would probably have fewer quests from first to fifth level. Grendelroot was almost all up to fifth level, right? They went up to sixth. I would have fewer early quests. I would have a great big bunch of, I would have a great big bunch of quests for fifth to 11th level. I would have the bulk of the, the story would be there. The bulk of the adventure would be there. And then I would probably offer up a smaller chapter on 11th through 16th-ish. And I might, I would start, instead of instead of offering up specific quests with like maps and breakouts, I would, I would have a few pages of like a bunch of different kinds of major story arcs that you could drop in that tier three. And then in tier four, I would say, and then I'd probably keep it up with tier four. So I'd take tier three and tier four, and I would offer a lot more advice on how to generate adventures. Things like that frozen, the Oath of the Frozen King, right? How to generate adventures than I would on trying to give you an adventure you could run yourself because I've done it and it's too hard, right? So yeah, so that's that. when I think about like what a yam-shaped campaign would look like, that's what it would look like. It'd be very narrow in that first tier, very, you know, six, six or so quests in that first tier to get you to level five. Then a whole bunch of the bulk in tier two, fifth to 11th level. That's where you have like real, the real adventure bulk is there. And then from 11th level to probably to 20th, I would instead offer a campaign guide, right? I would say, here's how you can take it to 20th. Here are some arcs you might run with. Here are some interesting locations you might use. And if you want to see what that looks like, the last chapters, a couple of the last chapters in Runes of the Grunner would have the kind of thing that I would, that I would do. Mostly handing it to the DM to generate adventures on their own, but giving them a framework to be able to do so. I think that's how I would do it. So I have two topics I didn't get to. Rolling dice with horde attacks, which is not particularly interesting. And do we need Avre anymore? And I am going to kill those ones. We'll cut those. So for those of you watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, thank you so much for uh, listening or watching this show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, there are four things you can do to help me out. The first thing is you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. The second thing is you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Third, you can support Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. You get access to all kinds of cool things. And fourth, you can pick up my books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and or the Lazy DM's Workbook. Thank you very much for listening and watching, and I will see you guys next week.